Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I am here today with the artistic director of the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater, Rebecca Scowett. Rebecca, how's it going? It's going good. I'm happy to be here. Good. I'm happy to have you on. We're about to talk about my favorite play today, uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, which you directed recently at the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater. Uh, so would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I have been artistic director here at Arkansas Shakespeare Theater for about four years now. This is coming on my fifth season. And prior to that, I did a lot of work in Chicago, actually primarily working on new plays. Chicago is a very, very new play place, but I've always had, a a passion for Shakespeare that really started when I was a kid. I grew up here in Arkansas in Little Rock. And I uh, got to see my first Shakespeare plays outside under the stars by an old Shakespeare festival that, that is sadly no more. But that was my, my first intro to Shakespeare. And my dad would take me to the shows and we'd come back home and talk about them. And he'd make me look up all the words that I didn't understand. <laughs> uh, and that was really sort of where um, that bug got started. And I was really excited. I got my graduate degree in directing from Illinois State University. And the Illinois Shakespeare Festival is based there. So I got to work every summer at Illinois Shakes and got to direct Shakespeare for the first time. And uh, really, that's sort of how it all started. And now it's kind of most of what I do as a director. That's amazing. And Illinois Shakespeare Festival is a great place to work. Um, Kevin Rich may be coming on. Kevin Rich, the new artistic director there, may be actually coming on the podcast sometime in November. Oh, great. So, yeah, so yes. we'll get to hear a little bit more about that. But um, Awesome. So um, I guess we could just dive right into this now. Um, we're about to talk about Two Gentlemen of Verona, and before we do, would you mind just giving us a quick synopsis of the play from your point of view? Sure. Uh, I think it, it centers around Proteus and Valentine, the two gentlemen of the title, and um, sort of their trials and tribulations in love. And the plot, basically, it begins with Valentine leaving Verona, um, going off to the big city where he meets and falls in love with a beautiful woman named Sylvia. And then his best friend Proteus, meanwhile, back in Verona, has wooed and won a beautiful young woman named Julia. Uh, then later, Proteus is sent away um, to follow his friend, can't stay at home anymore, has to leave Julia. So he gets sent away to go to the big city, to go to Milan, to join his friend Valentine. And he meets Sylvia, the woman that Valentine is in love with. And miraculously, he falls in love with her, too, and forsakes his Julia. Um, he then starts to work against Valentine to steal Sylvia away from him, uh, which has somewhat disastrous results. And then, of course, the, uh, Sylvia's father doesn't want her to marry either Proteus or Valentine and uh, wants her to marry another guy totally named Thurio, who she has no interest in whatsoever. Before she runs away, first Valentine is banished because he tries to steal her away, um, gets caught and gets banished from Milan out into the woods where he comes into contact with this crazy band of outlaws who are super fun. Uh, then after Sylvia finds out that he's been banished, she decides to run away herself. Uh, when she runs away, she gets caught by the outlaws. Then Proteus, who's following her, rescues her from the outlaws, uh, but she does not want to be rescued by Proteus. And then he, in a very perplexing moment, forces himself upon her, forces his love upon her. Valentine stumbles upon them. Julia, um, you know, at the beginning is in love with Proteus and they're sort of a thing. And Valentine makes fun of Proteus about it until he falls in love himself. And then Julia, in order to pursue Proteus, dresses up as a dude and goes out into the wilderness. Yeah. We, you wouldn't call it a love triangle because there's definitely four different people involved. But it's this weird, messy love quadrilateral of sorts yeah. Um, and then, you know, just to make things more interesting, there's two clowns, Lance and Speed, and then there's, um, uh, oh, what's uh, the Duke of Milan, who doesn't have an actual name other than the Duke of other Milan, the Duke. who's the yeah. father, and the outlaws, and there's just so many subplots and so many interesting things going on um, in the play, uh, and especially from a story or a, a playwriting standpoint, because we know Shakespeare was 
uh, invested in experimenting with a lot of different plot devices, I and mean, we'll get more to that later. Um, but since uh, well, you directed this in what was it, 2013? 2014. 2014, right? So um, why don't you tell us just a little bit about the challenges as a director, like going through that play? Sure. Well, I think the the biggest challenge really is Proteus himself as the main character. Uh, when I first started to work on it with my design team, my costume designer read the play for the first time, and she was like, are you kidding? This is the play that you want to do this summer? Uh, she was like, I hate Proteus. I can't stand him. Um, why would anybody want to see this play? And I think that's really the, I think that's really the, the big challenge you have to tackle is how do you make this guy who is at the center of the play likable and have the audience follow along with his story and care uh, and not just hate him because he does some pretty bad stuff. He um, throws over Julia, who we've seen him actively work to to win um, this lovely young woman. He betrays his best friend um, in the process of going after Sylvia. And then at the very end of the play, he you know forces himself on Sylvia, whether it's an attempted rape or something a little more mild is you know, something that many, many people have discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then after he does all that, he is forgiven by both Valentine, his best friend, and Julia. And that's just sort of um, a it's question, like how, yeah, how, how do they do that? How is that possible? Um, so I think that's really the, some of the many challenges that play presents. I mean, you know, and I think that's one of my favorite things about the play because it is so puzzling and you have to work so hard as artists to figure out how to solve it. Um, and, you know, we don't get opportunities like that every day. So, yeah. Um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, as I said earlier, is a play in which Shakespeare was very much experimenting with a lot of different plot devices uh, early on in his playwriting career. And I just, I guess, wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of those plot devices. For example, uh, Lance and, and or Speed as an intro to clowns or fools, whatever you want to classify them as. Uh, the Lucetta-Julia relationship. You know, let's start there, because that's one of my favorites. The Lucetta-Julia relationship as sort of an intro to Romeo and Juliet, and Juliet with the nurse. Um, Do we see similar... I mean, we see some similarities. What what do we think are maybe the biggest differences between the two relationships? Between Lucetta and Julia and, like, Juliet and the nurse, you mean? Or? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely uh, the one I actually I think of the most is because I, I think maybe because I just directed it is I just did is Portia and Nerissa from The Merchant of Venice. Sure. Okay. Uh, because they actually have a very similar scene where they each go through the suitors, um, and I think you see that a lot where you sort of have that female lead with her with her confidant friend, um, and I, I think you know it's it's great to see that because the women have their own private space where they can share things with each other that they can't say in front of the men in the primarily male world. And I think the characters like the nurse and Lucetta and Nerissa um, give those women an opportunity to, uh, to speak more freely than they can otherwise. And also to, to play with each other, um, to play language games with each other the way that Lucetta and Julia do a lot of. Definitely. Um, Another relationship, or another parallel, rather, that I wanted to draw is, I guess, just Lawson, all of the clowns <laughs> like, in, in Shakespeare. He's an odd sort of clown because, I mean, he, he this is a guy who takes his shoes off and, and talks to them at one point or makes them talk to each other, as, we, as we've often seen in certain productions of the play. Um, and also just this odd, odd relationship with his dog, Crab. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on Lance? Lance is great. I mean, he's he's a clown, um, but he's a very, I mean, he's like also just a regular guy, you know, so he's very relatable with this stuff with this dog. And I think a lot of the times he's not totally aware of his being funny. He's just just being being himself um yeah you definitely see other versions of him of him as Shakespeare works works through but I think he's one of the least self-conscious of the clowns um and the fact that he is he's like the butt of his own joke so often I feel like like with the the taking off the shoe and he's putting I I am the dog and the dog is me um getting you know getting himself mixed up the humor comes from his 
I don't know, his some in some ways his own um, sad situation, I guess. <laughs> and all he has is his dog. It's a very special dear dear relationship. And the, and of course for the actor playing Lance. The dog always steals the show, so that's something they have to... Right, yeah. <laughs> Especially, like, most productions, at least in a large-scale theater, like, have to use an actual dog. You know, yep. I mean, the suspension of disbelief is fine, but there's there's a lot of unintended comedy in using a fake dog in a play, you know? Or right. I don't know, like, you, did you use an actual dog in your production? Yeah. Yeah. We did. We had um, the, actually the actor uh, Robert Anderson, who played Lance for us, um, has a beautiful dog named Salem um, that that stepped in. She's a, a beautiful yellow lab, and she was our crab. That we had a lot of discussion about whether we needed to change the pronouns because it was a female dog, but oh. crab always referred to as a male. Um, but uh, but yeah, she was she was incredible, and and I think um, really makes those scenes work. You know, I've seen it done the the monologues done a lot in in auditions when you don't have a dog at all mm. and when you add that scene partner that's where the comedy really comes from and you it's amazing how all of a sudden a dog like turns out and faces the audience and it's a take you know yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it gives this huge laugh even though the dog is just kind of doing her thing but really gives gives Lance a great scene partner to play off of well and you know it's funny I I heard a quote from somebody once. I don't remember who it was. Um, it was definitely, I read it in an acting book, and um, somebody was talking about how having an animal, like they used a cat as an example on stage, how it's the most interesting thing on the stage whenever it's on there because it just draws the eye, and, and people are so interested in it because it's a cat being a cat, or in this case, a dog being a dog. Uh-huh. And that's, <laughs> that's what we strive to achieve as actors you know people being people um, right and it's not always easy but a dog doesn't care you know the dog's just there to be the dog and everybody's so entertained by the the suspense of is the dog going to behave and what's the dog doing now and oh my gosh he just licked his lips that's the most interesting thing i've ever seen in my life <laughs> that's right um a lot of fun um boy so another one of the or another set of relationships i wanted to talk about is um Valentine and Proteus as sort of a, a precursor to Romeo and Mercutio and perhaps mm -hmm. various other um, male pairs throughout Shakespeare's canon. Sure. Um, but do you see like any major similarities between those two or am I just grasping at straws? No, I th well, I think what's really interesting about the Valentine-Proteus relationship is is how much they love each other, sure. and I think that's something that you see in all in, in so many male relationships um, in Shakespeare, and the depth of feeling that's there. And I think that's one of the other hard things about the play is getting across how important that male male relationship is, because sure, we don't sure. necessarily have um, a parallel to that in in modern times. Men aren't expected to talk about love with their best friends like that's a little weird <laughs> um so so i think so i think you see it there you know in, in terms of the in terms of it coming through in other plays um you definitely get that that depth of feeling that romeo has between mercutio and how tight they are um and how playful they are with each other at the same time and you see it in the language that they use with each other as well as um in in how their relationship is spelled out but i also think you know there's there's echoes of it in, um, again, I just did Merchant of Venice, so that's right on my mind, but in Antonio and Bassanio's relationship um, uh, and that male that male love and how strong that, that bond is um, there. So, But I do think that Valentine and Proteus, one of the things that I really wanted to get across in our production was um, that they were, how close they were, how yeah, tight yeah. they were, and then, and how young they were, that they were these, like, young totally hormonal guys because <laughs> um, that was part of how we I think attacked the problem of what Proteus did was just thinking like they're just like young guys who are stumbling around and trying to figure out love and they're still pretty clueless about it well and you know it's interesting that you you bring that up because it seems like from a directorial standpoint and from an acting standpoint everything we set up in this play is all working towards the last scene of the play, you know? Like, we have to set so many things up early in advance to make the end work. 
mm-hmm. that sometimes it almost seems to seems to take control of the production, and it's like, how are we going to set all these dominoes up so that they fall together in the right way at the end? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely true, and and you sort of, in some ways, you do have to start with the end and say, okay, how are we gonna? What what is it that we want the audience to walk away from with this? Um, really, in some ways, has to be the first question of the play. Because I, when I started to work on it, you know, I read about all these different productions, and there are some productions that make the end super dramatic and don't worry about the fact that Shakespeare has written a happy ending and let it be an intense and um, uncomfortable. You know that the the fact that Julia goes back to Proteus is sort of um, leaves the audience going, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. You know, record points that out. And I knew from the beginning that I didn't want that feeling. I wanted to try to create the feeling of the happy ending that, that I believe that Shakespeare intended right. in writing the script. Um, and so, and so you're right. Like all, so many choices that we made about the production became about allowing that moment to work. Um, and for us, what we really did was add music to the play, and that was sort of the key to everything. Um, with the actor who played Proteus, Jordan Coftry, also is a wonderful songwriter. And so when I cast him early on in the process, I asked him to add some songs. And uh, we took sonnets primarily for the text and also some language from some of the other plays and inserted them in some of the key places to help to help make things work. And we added a song at the very end between when Julia reveals herself and when she forgives Proteus. And that gave the moment the necessary air, I think it needed Mm -hmm. to see her struggling with it, to really see him apologize. And I think the same way it works in musical theater, it allowed um, like this massive emotional change to happen through song and the audience accepted it a whole lot better then I think they would have had it just been, you know, a half a line and okay, I, I forgive you now. Everything's good. Um, well, so that's it's amazing me. because more than sometimes the even the actor him or herself can convey on stage, um, music adds a subtext to a scene that that lets the audience sympathize with whatever that subtext is. You know, because we inherently understand music so easily whereas from maybe you know 10 rows back in a house it's not as easy to read an actor's face as it is on film sure or or even more specifically that his or her eyes you know it's crazy yeah and the music definitely adds adds a lot and i think um make again makes it more accessible to people who maybe you know have never seen this play before or not familiar with shakespeare it adds something else um for them to be able to grab onto and hopefully keep their attention and get them excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as we've discussed one big scene already, um, I guess we can move on to talking about uh, Lucetta and Julia. I know we've already touched on their relationship, but mm-hmm. uh, this scene, I think of it in my head as the oh, hateful hands scene, because right. it's you know, <laughs> right when Julia tears up that letter and it's it's an audition monologue that young women use, use very often and yes. sometimes according to... Um, feedback I've heard from casting directors or directors end up leaving little pieces of paper on the stage after <laughs> they leave their audition, um, which is kind of funny. But why don't we, uh, what do you think about this scene? Like, what are, what are the main takeaways from it, and what does it give us as far as not only exposition, but about uh, a look into Julia? Sure. I think it's, it's really fascinating, that whole scene with Julia and Lucetta, where Julia is denying so much the fact that she has any kind of feelings for Proteus that she won't let. And we talked about earlier that she has this sort of safe female space with Lucetta. And yet she's keeping this piece of information very personal there um, to the, and she goes so far to the extreme that she tears up this letter before she even reads it, that this love letter from the man she loves. Mm -hmm. So you can see that she's, she's really conflicted about it. And I think uh, what it does in terms of the play is it, really allows the audience to identify with Julia, um, makes her um, really really somebody who's very relatable, because I think that is that sort of like, oh, I, I want to talk to him. No, no, I don't want to talk to him. I want to be with, no, I don't want to, you know, that, that back and forth is something that's so common 
Um, and to see her, that I mean, the tearing up of the letter and then the finding of the pieces, I mean, it's just so real and you really identify with it. So it, it lets you into her process and feels like something she's really going through in the moment. You know, that's what's one of the things I find so amazing about Shakespeare is that he does take these basic human things that are li literally just human experiences that aren't things that will change too much with time. I mean, they'll change in their specifics, but the basic fact of I'm scared to talk to him or but what if I don't talk to him is something that humans have been feeling, I'm guessing, since the first person made up a language and learned how to speak or however that happened. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, and again, this is something we've talked about a little bit earlier, but the uh, the Proteus and Valentine scene uh, in the play, which is one of my favorites and why I chose it over the rest of the amazing scenes in the play. <laughs> um, I call it their wordplay scene because it's, you know, it's Proteus and Valentine like ragging on each other for the most part, but they do use... Um, a lot of clever back and forth, and I'll try to find examples as we talk about it. Um, but this is also the scene where um, Valentine has this monologue about, like, why, man, she is mine own, and it's... Uh, it's such a good scene. I don't know, I guess I have it pulled up in front of me, but what are, what are your thoughts about not only the scene, but the relationship between these two that is revealed in this scene? Well, it's, it's so great because the, the way the play opens is with Valentine teasing Proteus about being this mooning lover boy um, and giving him such a hard time about it. And then the next time we see them together, the the worm has turned and Valentine is totally head over heels. And, and, and it's even more ridiculous than Proteus was at the beginning in some ways in terms of his love and is so hyperbolic. And I think that's yeah. the sort of, one of the fun things about the, the language is that he, the one-upsmanship in the language about, okay, now not only am I in love, but I'm really in love. I'm so much more in love than you and, and uh, how the woman that I love has to be so much better than, than yours. And then that's, you know, one of the things that people talk about in that scene is, is it, is when does Proteus actually fall in love with Sylvia? Is it when he meets her or is it when, Valentine's talking about her. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that, it's like, well, if his love is so much better than, maybe, you know, maybe he's right and I should love her too. You know, I, I do want to read just a couple of quick pieces of this scene. Like the way yeah. we're talking about it now, it is, it is very much one-upsmanship. And I, I'm reading this right here. Proteus says, um, enough, I read your fortune in your eye. Was this the idol that you worship so? And Valentine says, even she, and is she not a heavenly saint? And Proteus says, no, but she is an earthly paragon. Valentine responds with, call her divine. And we have just this back and forth of, ah, oh, she's great, but she's not that great. No, she's great, and you'll admit it. Mm -hmm. And it's just a lot of fun between these two characters, especially when it's compounded with the idea that Valentine did talk so, or so much to Proteus about, ah, oh, you're... You're such a sissy, like, earlier in the play. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess I want to move on to, to some of the characters in the play. And since we've already talked about Proteus and Valentine a lot, um, I want to talk just a little bit more about Julia and her journey through, like, the later parts of the play. Because we have talked about her in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, uh, when, what do we think drives her to go out in the woods dressed as a guy? <laughs> well, I, th I mean, she, you know, she decides to dress as a man to follow Proteus first to Milan, because of course, as a woman, she can't travel by herself. She can't travel freely, um, which is one of the great things, you know, you, you mentioned the conventions that, that are being introduced in this play that Shakespeare plays with. And, you know, obviously the, cro the cross-dressing female is one that he comes back to again and again in his plays. But I love this, this early version um, where, she, where she, she wants to be with the man she loves. And so, so she sets off to Milan to find him. Um, disguised as a boy. And then, of course, when she gets to Milan, she realizes that he's in love with someone else, and so she can't reveal herself to him and ends up being his servant, which is also... Then we sort of see that Viola-Orsino relationship where she's has to serve the guy that she loves as he tries to woo someone else and be in that service. Um, and, the, you know, obviously the difference here is that 
Julia and Proteus had a relationship before she went into disguise. So you would think that he would recognize her, but somehow he doesn't. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that was something um, I talked about with recently with somebody else on this podcast about, I think it was having to do with as you like it. Hmm. And like, why do we suddenly believe that um, Orlando doesn't recognize Rosalind? Yeah. Just some of the difficulties with disguise. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. Oh no, yeah, that's very true. Uh, but so, so anyway, I think that, so. She's again. I, I talked about it uh, earlier how she is so relatable, and I think this is another way that she is. And she has all these great soliloquies as she goes, where she talks to the audience about how she's feeling, and that how, how many how many women would deliver such a message um, that when she has to deliver a message to Sylvia for Proteus, and where she's sort of like, I shouldn't be doing this, but I am. And, and, and I, again, I just think that's so human, that idea of like, gosh, I know this is stupid. I know that I shouldn't be putting myself in this position for this guy, but I love him. So I am. Um, and, and it's just really human and really real. And I think that's what's so one of the things that's so great about Julia, um, and through all these monologues to the audience, she's so accessible to us. It's really fascinating and great. Well, and it's so another like one of the best things I find about that is that she is so vulnerable, you know, mm-hmm. like, you, you, the, the monologues make her accessible because we see everything. She talks about everything that's going on inside her and she does things that, you know, nowadays boys in high school would be like, Oh, she's crazy. <laughs> we recognize that there is such a heightened emotional state in every single one of her actions that, it's relatable to every one of us because we've yeah. wanted to do those things, whether it's to get attention or whether it's to um, pull somebody in, whether it's uh, – there, there are a bunch of different ways to describe it. And my head's running a little crazy with a bunch of ideas right now. But one of my favorite parts is where she sees uh, Proteus later in the play, right, when he's pursuing Sylvia. Am I – I'm not making this up, right? This is no. – she, she, she's, well, she's working for him. She becomes his page. Is that what you're yeah, yeah. talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and it all leads to the end where she finally, she faints on stage, like in the very end of the play, when everybody's all of a sudden like, oh, this is a happy ending, and people are maybe starting to exit, and she goes, oh, me unhappy, <laughs> and just like falls on the stage. Yeah. Um, well, she has, she's been, yeah, she's followed him out to the woods, and then there's that um, somewhat perplex, perplexing line from from Valentine where he said, where he, when he forgives Proteus mm-hmm. and he says, all that I have in Sylvia, I give to thee, I think is the line, um, which uh, scholars and scholars have argued about and debated. Is yeah. he actually giving Sylvia now to Proteus in this moment, which I don't think he is. And that's yeah. not how we played it, but he says that. And I think, so I think that's why Julia faints is because she thinks that after all this and everything that's happened, that, now Sylvia and Proteus are going to be together, I think. It's uh, it's such a complex mess of adolescent emotions. There, yes. there are a bunch of different ways to sort it out, but my favorite part about it, and why it is probably my favorite scene in all of Shakespeare, is mm-hmm. that there are many different ways you can put the puzzle pieces together, and as long as you make the audience connect with it and take something away from it, uh, it's it's going to be moving and it's going to be a great show. Um, so the next thing, uh, I want to move on to, and the, the last part of the Two Gentlemen of Verona segment of the play is Lance, and we have talked about him a little bit as a character, um, or, and as a precursor to the other clowns, but who, I guess my question is, who is Lance in the world of the play? Like, how does he fit into the action? Well, I think one of the one of the interesting things about the clowns in this play is that they don't really fit into the action. And this is where you sort of see it being an early play of Shakespeare's. And a lot of scholars think it was actually his very first play is because mm-hmm. you, you don't have the clowns as integrated with the plot. They sort of exist side by side with the plot. And so you have a scene with the main plot and then you have a scene with speed and launch and a scene with the main plot and a scene with speed and launch. Um, and so they're, they're alongside the main plot, but not, but not central to it. But at the same time, there sort of are elements 
that kind of mock um, the main plot in a way or or refract it. Like when you have the scene where um, Proteus says goodbye to Julia when he's leaving Verona, and then you have the scene of Launce, the comic scene of Launce saying goodbye to his family. So you sort of have the same that same scene and that same idea of leaving and leaving people that you love told from a more sincere romantic perspective and then told from this sort of then made fun of and put through this comic lens. Um, so I think it's kind of, that's kind of a fun way that even though those two plots are not as integrated as they are in Shakespeare's later plays, um, that they, they still are intertwined. Sure. They, they still can reflect something about the action of the play that's happening in front of us, which is a cool little technique i guess yeah um great so this is my favorite part of every podcast and literally as i'm saying that i realize that i call every part of the podcast my favorite part of the podcast (laughs) but this actually is my favorite podcast because we get to play a game okay um and for the listeners listening out there this game is has been played on every one of the last like five or six podcasts and basically, I did not tell Rebecca anything about the game until right before the podcast, so she had no time to research, which is, again, what makes this game so much fun to me. And it's <laughs> called Eldest... Part of the guest. <laughs> exactly. So the game is called Eldest MacDonald Thou Hadst a Farm, which is my own clever way of saying we are going to test you by giving you quotes that have an animal's name in them somewhere. And you will have to tell me what play the quote is from. There are 12 listed below. Some of them are more obvious than other others. And I'm not going to put any time on the clock because I make up the rules and nothing else. <laughs> All right. Cool. So the first one is, Oh, serpent heart hid with a flowering face. Did ever dragon keep so fair a cave? I really don't know. <laughs> Just I'm take gonna, a wild guess. I'm, gonna, I'm guessing Othello, but I, that's, it's wild. It's actually Romeo and Juliet. Oh. Juliet quote. Oh, no. Um, number two. A horse, a horse. My kingdom for a horse. That one I know. <laughs> that one's Richard Third. That is correct. Uh, the next one. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Don't know that one either, uh, but I'm guessing it's a history play. Am I right about that? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> um, I'm going to go Henry V. That's absolutely right. This is part ah. of the once more into the breach, dear friends. That's right. It seemed of that nature. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number four is, and every cat and dog and little mouse live here in heaven and may look on her. Romeo and Juliet. That's right. (laughs) Um, The next one, more direful hap betide that hated wretch that makes us wretched by the death of thee than I can wish to wolves, to spiders, toads, or any creeping venomed thing that lives. Oh, I I know I know that quote. Is it is it two gents? <laughs> no, no, this oh. is uh, Richard the Third, Lady Anne. Oh, Richard Anne. the Third. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Uh, the next one. Now the hungry lion roars and the wolf behowls the moon. Julius Caesar. No. Nope. No, this is <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream. And the only oh, real hint, like, it, it's such an out-of-context quote. The only real hint is that it's in um, uh, iambic tetrameter rather than iambic <laughs> pentameter. Oh, I, I totally got that from your reading, that it was iambic <laughs> pentameter. <laughs> it, that's from the, um, it's from the play within a play. Is that right? From the Pyramus and Thisbe? I believe so. I'm going to have to double check that. I literally just pulled (laughs) all these quotes out of plays and didn't bother to write down where they were. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So the next one. I will be more jealous of thee than a Barbary cock pigeon over his hen, more clamorous than a parrot against rain, more newfangled than an ape, more giddy in my desires than a monkey. That's as you like it. That's that's Bob right. Osland. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Bonus points for knowing the character. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
So the next one, love's feeling is more soft and sensible than are the tender horns of cockled snails. Mm, you got a hint for me there? Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, the the previous some of the previous text is a lover's eye will gaze an eagle blind. Mm, uh, mm, no, I'm still so, I'm, I'm still lost. Sorry. <laughs> this is Baroon from Love's uh, Labor's uh, Lost. Uh, it is part of the have at you then affections men at arms speech. Uh, the next one. Come, be a man. Drown thyself. Drown cats and blind puppies. Your hint is that you've already guessed this one. <laughs> that I've already guessed it and I was wrong earlier. That's right. <laughs> Julius Caesar? <laughs> no, it's Othello. Oh. This is Iago in... Oh, a, a quote that I've found inexplicable for some time and have not figured out how to make work as an actor, which is fine because I haven't played Yago in a production yet. Yeah. But what do you do with a line like that? You know, drown cats and blind puppies? <laughs> it's, it's a good villain quote. Well, yeah, and especially, <laughs> like, you know, in a day and age where everybody's obsessed with dog and cat videos all over Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> you know, literally, I was going through Facebook the other day to tag one of my uh, videos on my on my YouTube channel as something, and one of the options was literally cute animal videos, and the rest were vague things like entertainment, travel. <laughs> it just, Anim it fascinated Animals are me. very popular. Again, Crab is always the star of Two Gentlemen of Verona. There you go. It's all about the doggies and the kitties. People care more about what's cute. We want cute nowadays. Um, the next one is, If I be waspish, best beware my sting. Uh, that is... I know that. Is that much to do? No, no. I'll oh. give you one more. Okay. Oh, oh, Kate. It's Kate. Yep, it's, that's uh, right. Uh, Tammy of the Shrew. See, and most of these, like, I'm saying them right now so out of context that it's <laughs> difficult to place where they're from because they're not exactly famous quotes. But... Defend, defend me, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, here, here's the thing. I, I work in a restaurant on weekends, and I play these games with two of my friends at work just to okay. test them out. And, and the people on the podcast always end up doing way better than, than my friends at work for some reason, probably because we're all tired at work. Yeah. But, um, like nobody got hardly any of these right at work so and there's no real reason to defend anybody for this game but it's a fun qualifier yeah. uh, the next one is they say the owl was a baker's daughter lord we know what we are but know not what we may be mm, I don't know I think it might could it be Hamlet it is yeah oh, alright <laughs> Ophelia. Uh-huh. And the final one is, he loves to hear that unicorns may be betrayed with trees and bears with glasses, elephants with holes, lions with toils, and men with flatterers. That's a great quote, but I <laughs> do not know what it's from. <laughs> You've already you guessed it twice. Uh is it Julius Caesar? That's right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> of is Brutus. Yeah, of course, of course. Makes In reference sense. to Caesar, of course. Yeah. yeah. So the next part of the podcast is uh, the rhetorical device of the day, which I'm just going to touch on today. Um, it's chiasmus. And for those who are listening who don't know what chiasmus is, it's when a pair of words are compared and then reversed in a uh, in a latter phrase. For example, in Macbeth, fair is foul and foul is fair. Um, and this, it, it doesn't really have much of a rhetorical effect in, in my mind, and we can talk about that and I can probably be proven wrong, um, <laughs> but it also, it has a very big poetic effect because it catches the ear. Um, so, I mean, first off, what are your, what are your opinions on on fair is foul and foul is fair? How does that how does that affect the audience? I think I mean I think in that context, part of it is is the idea of of, of turning things inside out 
Sure. You know, the, the repetition of it, not, you know, not, not only is fair foul, but foul is fair. So those two things have been, both of those items now have been reversed. I don't know. It gives it that, that feeling of like, of chaos. Sure. It does. And it compounds it in a way too. Um, so another one I have is Falstaff, um, Mm -hmm. from Henry the fourth part one. He says, if then the tree may be known by the fruit as the fruit by the tree, then peremptorily I speak it. Uh, this one's a little more confusing to me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's the same sort of thing. It doesn't seem like there's a purpose except to compare the reverse of something, you know? Right. Well, I, th- I mean, so the tree by the fruit, so we can tell a tr- we can tell an apple tree is an apple tree because it grows apples versus the fruit by the tree where we recognize the apple tree and know it will grow apples. <laughs> <laughs> so I get, which is harder, right? That's, that's a harder thing to do. So, so I, I would think it's harder for me. Well, uh, you know, that's an interesting point, because what does the actor have to do to make this clear to the audience? Because it's not right. only chiasmus, it's kind of a metaphor, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, he and he's using it, to, he's using it to make, he's using the chiasmus to make his point, which is, I think, and I don't know the context of the quote, but it seems like if I, even, if it if it's if this way if you can do it this way then you can also turn around and do it this way and it's still true right right yep and, and just like the earlier quote it does have that compounding effect and it's also right. this this is a great example where it is a rhetorical device because it's he's using that comparison to flip flop it and make an argument right because um, it's it's right. a postulate statement if right. then the tree may be known by the fruit as the fruit by the tree then peremptorily I speak it, there is virtue in that Falstaff. So yeah, he is definitely using it to make an argument. Another one I pulled out is from Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, Benedict says, but till all graces be in one woman, one woman shall not come in my grace. Uh Uh-huh. That's just funny. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's a different kind of chiasmus because it's not really compounding anything, but it is using word reversal for a humorous effect which right. works very well right um, yeah it's, it's sort of it's using the it's using a pun on grace to yes. to flip it and make the and make the point which is yeah which is great um and the last one i have is actually also from much ado about nothing uh claudio in his you know calling out hero in the middle of the wedding scene which is you know another one of those things that you have to you have to plan a lot of things in the play, and especially things with scenes with Claudio in them around that scene in order to make it work, much like two gents. Um, he says, "Thou pure impiety and impious purity, for thee mm-hmm. I'll lock up all the gates of love, and on my eyelids shall conjecture hang to turn all beauty into thoughts of harm, and never shall it be more gracious." This one's a little yeah. bit different from all three, I guess. It, I, I seem to have unintentionally picked four different <laughs> examples of four different ways it's used, which is very convenient for the podcast. Um, but I don't know. What do you think of this? Thou pure impiety like a, and impious purity. Right. The beginning is really where the, the chiasmus comes in. I think, I think actually in some ways that's working the same way as fair is foul and foul is fair. Um, that that uh, pure... Say it again. It's pure. Thou pure impiety impiety. and impious purity. So she's she's pure and impious and impious and and in in the pure. So it's it's like each one of those things has has turned the other one around again. I think like it again. It the compounding effect. Yeah, yeah, you're right because it's each one working as each word working as a descriptive adjective to a trait that he believes is in her. Yeah. Yeah. So she she is both impious and pure at the same time, um, even though those things are really opposites, but she encompasses both of them. This one's especially interesting um, because it is like foul, fair is foul and foul is fair in the sense that we have um, pure and we have impiety, which are two Mm -hmm. like very 
opposite kinds of words, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you put them together, it, it, they're both negative things, right? Pure impiety mm-hmm. and impious purity both end up being negative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're, you're purely impious, like that's, you're, that's, all, that's, all, that's all you are, and you're impious in your purity. So I guess when we have chiasmus in text, we really just have to figure out ways to make it make it work you know we have to pick it apart figure out why it's there and then use the poetry to our advantage while also using it as rhetoric yeah <laughs> absolutely i mean it, i think it all it all, almost always does help make the point though and and make it more strongly mm-hmm. uh, and, and particularly when the actor is in really engages in it it's, it's funny i have um two gents open in front of me right here and I just, my eye just caught on, your grace is welcome to a man disgraced. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Well, have fun with that challenge, actors. <laughs> um, so the next part of the podcast is Tyrant Producer. Um, and we're only going to spend a little bit of time on this because we're running out of time today. But Tyrant Producer is a new segment that I've been doing lately. And the idea is Tyrant Director has just given you a million dollars to direct his production of his favorite Shakespeare play. You have to be able to direct this production and be willing to put your name on it, but there's one catch. Tyrant Producer has a crazy, terrible idea that he wants to implement, and you have to make it work. So today, our Tyrant Producer has taken two gentlemen of Verona and wants to cast the four main lovers, Thurio and Speed, as representations of six different high school stereotypes. Okay, that sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) So the way I've gone about this today is I've pulled up on Yahoo Answers, believe it or not, Uh. a bunch of different high school stereotypes, and I'm going to list them off right now, and hopefully we'll have a similar idea about what each of these things means. Um, Prep, nerd, jock, emo, punk, goth, and that's all the ones that I actually care about because the rest of these don't really seem like... Oh, and Girl Next Door. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So well, I guess start. let's start with Proteus as long as we're figuring Proteus? out where to start. I think Proteus is totally emo. <laughs> he's like so tortured. Um, I think he's he's definitely the, the emo guy and he's like in love all the time and it's really hard. That's, that's where I see him. You know, it's interesting because I would put Proteus just because of his relationship with, uh, with Valentine, mm-hmm. um, as maybe either the, the punk or the, the, maybe the nerd because in, in order to make really, <laughs> Well, so I want to make the relationship with the, you know, the whole picking on someone for being in love thing interesting. Like in the in the imaginary production in my head that Tyrant Producer is forcing me to direct. Um, and for that scene at the beginning where Proteus, or where Valentine's basically ragging on Proteus, oh, love's stupid, you're, you're dumb. Um, it makes him either kind of like a jock or a prep to me in that relationship. Which would make Proteus maybe emo, but also maybe the nerd, you know? Somebody who's... Well, no, you know, I would want Thurio as the nerd. Thurio, I think Thurio is definitely the nerd. Yeah, yeah. he tries so hard to woo Sylvia the right way and do it all right, and she just has is not interested in him at all. Yep. Cool. So we can, we can, put that, <laughs> we can take that to the bank. So um, I think I, I, I think you gotta go Proteus as emo just because he is so he is so in touch with his emotions and he and he's not afraid to deal with his emotions and the way that Valentine sort of is like put like that stupid and making fun of it and and Proteus is like no man I'm just going there and he and he also becomes like so I don't know he gets so wrapped up in it as time goes on so yeah okay me, he's definitely I'm on board with that so <laughs> if we make Proteus the emo, then what does that make Valentine? Maybe I, like I, the prep? I think you're right. He's either prep or jock. Um, I don't know. What, what's the difference between the prep and the jock? I guess one plays sports and one doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the jock is very, you know, tough, sportsy, um, 
the the prep is more obsessed with image, you know, uh, clothing label um, obsessed. Um, listens to you know all the most popular top forties music. Very concerned with the opinions of his peers in general. Whereas the yeah. jock, pretty much, I feel like in my head knows that he's tough and that he's in charge. Uh huh. But it's also, but at the same time, he's it's like he's popular, but it's but it's more effortless. It's like yeah, exactly. It's because, it's because of his uh, athletic prowess. I would, I guess, I think I would put Valentine more in the jock category because I don't think he's as I don't think he's as um like like self obsessed with okay. stuff. I don't and he and he is uh you know, he can handle his own out in the woods with the outlaws. That's so. right, yeah. <laughs> totally. Okay, so then where where do we put speed then? Because that would make Boy, I don't know. Hmm. This is where it I mean, gets... And what what do we have left? We have the punk. Yeah, so we have. I sort of think of Speed as like uh, a class clown, or I know that's not on your list. Or well, you know, uh, we can um... use it. It's a high school stereotype <laughs> that's not listed here. Sort of an uh, a screech type of character from Saved by the Bell. You get sure. that reference. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he and he is a clown. So let's go with 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 um, Speed as the class clown, which I think. Puts Julia, and you can tell me if you agree with this, in this production, Julia could work as the goth. Oh, interesting. See, I would go Girl Next Door, but that's but that's just me. Um, Which I guess that would leave room for Sylvia as the prep, you know? Prep yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be a guy. Like, Sylvia, especially, you know, having her beauty talked about the whole play, prep makes yeah. a lot of sense to me in that aspect. Yeah, and, and I and I actually like when I was directing this before. I sort of I did. I mean, the high school thing really fits so well in terms of how they're behaving towards each other. And I do. I mean, she's like the, you know, she's the she's the queen bee. The 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 what is it? The no no the the mean girl the top. I mean, she's not sure. necessarily mean, but she's in that she's in that role because she has status and power and beauty. I was and just gonna everything. say status and beauty definitely. Yeah. Um, cool. So we're about out of time for today, um, but before we go, Rebecca, I just want to give you a chance to plug anything that you're working on or that you have upcoming for the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater. Yeah, um, we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary season. It'll be uh, next summer, which is really exciting to have made it 10 years doing Shakespeare in Arkansas. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. So we just announced our season. We're doing Romeo and Juliet, which I'm directing. So uh, I'll be much more familiar with the animal references in it if, if you talk to me next year. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're also doing West Side Story with that. We do a musical every year. So I'm really excited about getting to put those two plays together. Um, we're doing Midsummer Night's Dream outside, which is going to be fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then we're doing a short one-hour adaptation of Twelfth Night. And um, that's all in Conway, Arkansas. And we open in the beginning of June and we'll run through the beginning of July. That is fantastic. So yes. everybody, go all the way to Conway, Arkansas. I don't care where you are in the U.S. Find <laughs> a way to get there. Watch their summer season, watch their outdoor production of Midsummer Night's Dream, watch their production of Romeo and Juliet, watch West Side Story, watch their hour-long Twelfth Night, get all the Shakespeare you can. It's a great company, I've been tracking them for a number of years, Um, and do it, go there, go to Conway. Um, For myself, my name's Kyle Downing, I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website, www.kyledowning.com Shakespeare. You can also keep in touch with me on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at NYShakesGuy. And on Facebook, my page is NYShakesGuy. You can like it. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. I'm Kyle Downing for Rebecca Scallett. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep up the hard work on your bard work.